Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of an SSS Magazine. Today on the show is the co-host of the Mission Log Star Trek-themed podcast, John Champion. We're going to talk about the new Trek show, Star Trek Discovery, that debuts next week on CBS before moving to their streaming service. We're going to talk about what we know about the show so far and how the guys are going to review the show. We also talk about where Mission Log is, getting ready to wrap up next gen and starting Deep Space Nine in a few weeks. We also talk about the career of Martin Landau, who passed away a few months ago. This is the first time we've had the opportunity to have John on to talk about it. We talk about Mission Impossible and some of his other noted roles. We also talk about greatness of Casino Royale and how some people do not appreciate it the way we do. Wanted to quickly mention that yesterday the great Bobby Heenan passed away. Obviously he is one of the greatest managers of all time, if not the greatest, depending on who you talk to. Due to the short notice and when this pod was scheduled, we did not have time to get a wrestling historian guest on to talk about Bobby. We hopefully will do that in the coming days and weeks. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. back to the Winter Palace. It's an exciting time for sci-fi fans as we are just a few days away from the debut of Star Trek Discovery. And as fortune has it, we are very happy to have one of the best people that we can find to discuss it, the co-host of the Mission Log podcast, John Champion. But before we get to Star Trek, uh, the reason that we initially had talked about having John on the show a month or so ago was... Uh, well, we'll get to that in a second, so let me just welcome John to the show. How's it going, John? Hey, great, Mark. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. I Like I said, I there have been a couple times when I had thought about contacting you to do the pod after uh, certain people had, had passed away, and I know that you're, in addition to being a Trek guy, that you're a 60s spy guy, and I know like when Robert Vaughn died last year oh, wow. and a couple and a couple people uh since then but uh the one that really made me want to get you on the show to talk about because of all the things he did and not just in the spy genre was when uh martin landau passed away a couple months ago yeah. um people who listen to the pod may know that uh mission impossible at least the the, the original cast version is still my like favorite TV show of all time. So when Sweet. when Martin Landau passed away, this was like you know this was this was a a gut punch to me. And so yeah. I thought uh, you being a spy guy, we could talk about some of the uh, his role as Roland Hand, some of the other stuff he did, and then uh, it's funny as I was doing this research, I knew that there were a bunch of Trek connections that he had, but there were some that I had either forgotten about or didn't know about until I was doing my research, and we'll get to that too. So um, I guess we'll start with, um, were you, um, I think you and I are roughly about the same age, so we did not see Mission Impossible when it was on originally, but uh probably saw it in syndication so what do you remember like when the first time you watched it maybe as a kid and how you've sort of grown to appreciate it more as an adult well here's the thing what what does everybody remember about the first time they saw mission impossible they remember the theme song because even before you had seen the show you remember the theme song because it's one of the great memorable themes of all time <laughs> so you know that that's First and foremost, you know that Lalo Schifrin tune right away. And the thing, well, I, I think some of the earliest episodes that I saw were ones with Leonard Nimoy. So my immediate reaction was, what is Spock doing on this other show? You know, that was, uh, that, that was key. Um, and then I, I have to say that, you know, being somebody who was into James Bond and The Man from Uncle and so many other kind of cool, suave 60s shows, 
Mission Impossible has that uh, that special place because of the. It's always about the team. It's always about the teamwork, and it's always about like the the gimmick. You know what what's the thing that they've done to pull one over on the other guy, on on the the bad guy or the nemesis of the week. You know, so um, it it plays out really not like any other spy show. And, and I remember they did an okay job at capturing that when they rebooted the show in the 80s, and Peter Graves came back for that as well. Um, movies are a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, I am, I am, I am not, I am not a fan. So I just sort of yeah. like they exist, and I know that the, the the best thing about the movies to me are that it kept bringing the television show back on cable. You know, yeah, before right. before right. you could get like before you could get it on VHS or on on DVD, it's like every time one of the new movies came out, whoever had the rights for it at the time would put it back into syndication so you could watch them again. To me, that was the best thing about the movies. Yeah, right, right. And um, the the thing about you know we're we're here to talk about Martin Landau specifically, and the, the thing about him is that within well, Mission Impossible specifically you could kind of look at the other characters and and look at the heroics you know this was peter graves in his prime and you had greg morris who was very cool peter lupus of course he's he's built you know and barbara bain is stunning and and wonderful and martin landau from the beginning of his career, one of my favorite roles of his was really early in his career, and that was um, as Luther in North by Northwest. Um, but Martin Landau in Mission Impossible is less about the heroics. You know, he's not trying to play James Bond on TV. It's not a, a man from uncle kind of thing. But he always plays the tension of a scene really well and really subtly. He's not an actor who really needs to raise his voice much at all. You can just sort of see it in his eyes. Um, and, and that's the thing. I, I went back and I just watched some sort of like highlights of uh, Martin Landau as, uh, as Roland Hand. And um, there's something that I really like about the quiet moments in his scenes where it's just subtly building the tension of who he's in the room with. And and it, it it's not like it's not like that that cut from the same heroic action cloth of other leading men on TV at the time. It's something very different, and I love that about him. Yeah, some of the ones that I went back to watch are the ones that I know are sort of a lot of them are generally considered as sort of the the better episodes. But mm -hmm. uh, there's I don't know if and if you watched any of these, but there's the one with uh that's called the execution when it's okay. he and there's a there's a mob hitman that they're trying to get to confess and so um they basically uh he kill he uh thinks he kills Peter Graves and and Barbara Bain and then he mm -hmm. gets captured and knocked out and then he wakes up and he's in a prison and he's on death row for mm. their murder and then Martin Landau is playing the guy in the cell next to him who's going to be killed first oh, to scare I've... this guy into confessing. Nice. And and it's it's funny cuz he it's like you said it's very understated he's sort of a like a schlubby guy who accidentally killed his wife and now he's going to be put to death for it and he's He's very calm, but like as soon as he's getting ready to go into the chamber, he breaks down and he starts crying and all this, and he's really, really emoting. Yeah, and it's like it's it's such a a, a great episode for him. And the other one that I watch, and this is one of the the Trek connections, is um, because both of the shows were filmed on the Desilu lot, and I was reading that apparently that. Um, Martin Landau and Barbara Bain used to come over and hang out on the Trek set sometimes. So these two shows were sort of nah. fraternized. But uh, there's an episode called The Mind yeah. of Stephen Milkos, um, which uh -huh. features uh, Stephen Inhat, who has a really famous oh, yeah, uh, Star, Star Trek 
uh, episode when he plays uh, the crazy Lord, 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 Lord Garth. Yeah. And the the deal with this episode was he is sort of this sort of uh, Sherlock Holmesy kind of guy who um, is is an agent for one of the mysterious other countries that you mm-hmm. know are either made up or never named, and they have to tr- they basically do like a double bluff with this guy where he's investigating an agent in the United States who it's funny is played by Ed Asner of all people. So it's really funny to see, (laughs) to see Ed Asner and they basically have to sort of do a double bluff where they're trying to convince him of one thing, but they're leaving clues for Stephen Inhat to find so that he can figure out that this guy is being set up. So it's this interesting yeah. sort of though. And then Landau in this episode is masquerading as both the character that Inhat is playing and the character that Ed Asner is playing as they meet each other. So when he meets when he meets Inhat, he's playing the Ed Asner character, and when he meets Ed mm-hmm. Asner, he's playing the Stephen Inhat character. So he's playing two different people in this episode. Right. And you can tell which one he's playing by the way he's acting. When he's supposed to be this sort of super smart detective, he's carrying himself very haughty and you know brainy. And then when he's playing sort of the 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 Ed Asner character, you know, he's very meek and subservient and all this stuff. And it's it's a great episode for him where he's playing basically playing two different characters. Yeah. You know, yeah. in a way that you know, to go away from Mission Possible for like, like if if people have ever seen the episode of Columbo that he's in, he plays mm. he plays twins that mm-hmm. you know may or may not have committed the murder that Columbo's investigating and they're they're sort of one is meek and one is strong and he plays them both differently so you know which one he's playing it's just another one of those things where it shows you how right. great landau was but those yeah, are just well and and the... yeah you're, you're you're kind of nailing also what's unique and cool about mission impossible so you know i i mentioned my love for the man from uncle or you take star trek or whatever from week to week those characters are the same you know, every now and then on Man from Uncle, you throw Ilya Kuryakin into an undercover role, but pretty much it means, all right, we take David McCollum because he's cool looking anyway, and we'll put some new sunglasses on him, and now he's playing in a jazz club, or we'll we'll put a, uh, you know, we'll put a fake beard on him for a moment. But Mission Impossible, and particularly when you've got a talent like Martin Landau. They would throw these actors into these scenes where they actually have to play a different character, and you, you're mentioning him really playing the emotional depth of this guy on on uh, uh, Death Row. And that's the kind of thing that you would only do on Mission Impossible, you know? Uh, so it's great from week to week that the, the actors are not only playing the characters that they are, but they're, they're playing the characters that their characters are playing. Um, it, it's, it must have been incredibly challenging, and you have to have really talented people to pull that off. And he oftentimes had to do it under under makeup which yeah. also and you know you wonder some of that stuff you know for being the mid 60s to turn that around on a fairly quick you know obviously mm-hmm. you know star trek has to deal with all kinds of of makeup issues for you know the alien of the week or whatever sure but you know here he's playing you know a latin american dictator or an east german priest or a guy in the mob you know it's again like you mm-hmm. said it's a different mm-hmm. thing every time so it's not even like you know, Leonard Nimoy had to, you know, put up with being Spock for three years, but he, you know, I'm sure eventually he got used to, you know, I know exactly how long this is going to take to put the ears on. I know how long it's going to take to do the eyebrow, you know, so he probably yeah. knew. Yeah. Whereas for Landau, different every week. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you mentioned Man from Uncle and uh, Martin Landau had... I guess I don't know. Is it famous or infamous? Uh, an appearance <laughs> on Man from Uncle, where he—it's—it's it's an episode called the Batcave Affair, which so again, it's oh, you know right. during yeah. during the height of of Batmania, and he's playing like a, a 
a Transylvanian a Transylvanian Transylvanian thrush agent who <laughs> may or may may or may not be a vampire. And if you see the stills from this, he's dressed in a Dracula cape and he's doing an accent that we would, you know, that he would later win an Oscar for. You know, he's yeah. basically <laughs> doing his Bell Lugosi in, you know, 1967 for us. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, maybe not one of the greatest episodes in The Man from Uncle, but it's it's it, it, it's up there, and and certainly by his talent. But yeah, he he got to bring that back as uh, Bella Lugosi, and and that's really it, you know it, it sounds cliche because uh, of course the uh, the the accolades and the awards that he got for playing that role, but that. That really is one of my favorite roles of his. It it's so tragic and so touching um, that uh, Ed Wood is just one of those movies that I go back and rewatch every few years anyway. And I have kind of a, a special place in my heart for that anyway because years and years and years ago um, I played a version of Ed Wood in a theme park show. So I really studied that movie for a time, and, and it's a great movie to study. I also think it's very inspirational. Like, the message in that movie is, you know what? Follow your dream. If, if you're going to make a movie, go make a movie. Look, Ed Wood was not stopped, stopped by his lack of talent. <laughs> so go go make the movie. The, the, the interesting thing, too, about Landau's career before he was on Mission Impossible is – you look at all, I mean, sort of like a lot of people, he did so much TV in the 50s mm-hmm. and 60s, and it seems like he was on almost every Western there was, and, you know, there were there were plenty of them. Um, he was, you know, he was a bad guy in Wild Wild West. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he was in, he was in Maverick, he was in Gunsmoke, he was in Bonanza. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what, I think an interesting thing is, I'm, he's probably not alone in this, but it's interesting that not only did he uh, pull off the trifecta of being on Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, and Alfred Hitchcock, <laughs> but then he was on the 80s revival of Twilight Zone and Hitchcock. So, and of course, oh, like cool. you said, like you said, he was in North by Northwest, so he, you know, yeah, yeah, he had worked with Hitchcock already, and. Like he said, there's just – and he even had – I had forgotten about this one until I was looking up, but he has like a 30-second cameo in Get Smart where oh, cool. where yeah. Max had undergone plastic – I only saw the clip. I didn't see the whole episode. But um, Max had undergone plastic surgery, and he ends up looking like Martin Landau. And hmm. the chief says something like – you know, you're too handsome to be a spy or something. You look like Martin Landau. And yeah. then he talks with Don Adams' voice. So it's, I was like, I don't need, like, I, Funny. I don't remember that at all. And, you know, and like you said, and then, you know, he oh, did, wow. you know, and he won. And I guess the other thing, uh, since, you know, this is sort of a genre podcast is after he and Barbara Bain left uh, Mission Impossible, a few years later, they hook up with Jerry Anderson, yes. and make and make Space 1999. Yes, which is is funny because that's something I always knew about as a kid, but I don't remember it ever being like in syndication, like here oh, sort of okay. sort of in the East Coast. And that was something I would read about, you know, like when you get your big encyclopedia of sci-fi TV shows or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm like, oh, this is cool. It's Martin Lano and Barry Bain. But it was like a British show, and you know, I don't know, yeah. like, where or when it was shown here. So that's something, like, I saw much later. So I, I really love that show, Warts and All. Um, it, it, it's not a perfect show, but there's so much that I love about it, not not the least of which is the, the performances. Um, they really set out to make kind of the anti-Star Trek Um Meaning that, you know, just the color palette of the show, it, it's subdued. The tone is sort of quiet, mysterious. Um, again, not – Martin Landau as Commander Koenig is the opposite of James T. Kirk. 
you know, he's not the guy with the, the ripped shirt and throwing himself into uh, the arms of the alien babe of the week. You know, it, it's not like that at all. He's got this kind of quiet, contemplative, uh, studious, and he's a little bit older uh, by the time he's making that show. And um, I remember it being on, I, I think it premiered in 75, but I remember it coming to the U.S., and I remember catching it like on PBS or something around like around the time that Star Wars was out. So like 1977, 78, when that kind of wave of sci-fi mania hit, that's um, that's when I remember that show being on. And then it kind of went away for a while because it wasn't cool anymore. Uh, but the restorations that they've done on Blu-ray for that show are phenomenal. The the special effects on it are incredible. Um, and, and I really like watching the performances, and particularly Martin Landau. It was uh, it, it was a cool show. It's not for everybody. I totally understand that. <laughs> but uh, but like I said, I do have a soft spot in my heart for it. The thing that I didn't remember, because this wouldn't have meant anything to me, you know, like when I would have saw it as a kid or even like as a young adult, but I was watching the pilot the other day, and I'm like, all of a sudden, there's Philip Maydock as mm -hmm. the commander that he's replacing, and now, you know, I know of him from all of this British, you know, he was in Doctor Who, and um, yeah. he was in, he, you know, he's in Dad's Army, and all these kind of things, and I'm like, oh, and those, uh, and, you know, those ITV spy shows from from the 60s like mm -hmm. you said one of those things that and you know and then space 1999 has barry morrison i think if i remember right he at one point may have been up to be one of the doctors i think if i remember right either i think either pertree or tom baker i think barry morse i think may have been a candidate if i have that right uh, but, i wouldn't doubt it and and barry morse is fantastic in space 1999 it's such a shame that he wasn't around for season two but he's great but, uh, yeah, so one of the uh, – sort of speaking of that is one of the things that I noticed, and I sort of mentioned it before, is there's all these connections between Mission Impossible and Star Trek that, mm -hmm. you know, they're filmed on the Desilu lot together. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, a common pool of guest stars maybe. Maybe it's just because these are all people who were known for their sort of genre work at the time, but, you know, people like – William Wyndham and Nehemiah Persoff and uh, Malachi Throne and all these, you know, these guys who always played great bad, you know, TV bad guys. And it's like you see them pop up in Mission Impossible one or two times. You've seen them in Star Trek. And then I guess I'll, I'll ask your opinion on this since I did not realize there was uh, controversy over this about whether or not it's true that – there's long been the story that Landau may or may not have been on the list of people to play Spock. He and, absolutely was. Yeah. But now, but in doing my research, I've seen people say, no, like it was always going to be Leonard. And, you know, that Landau has sort of perpetuated a myth <laughs> and that goes along with, you know, and then you have the thing where, like you said, Nimoy replaced Landau in Mission Impossible. So it's a great yeah. sort of symbiotic thing, like Landau may have been Spock, but Nimoy was Spock, and then Nimoy replaces Landau in the show. So I guess so you are in the, yes, Landau might have been Spock at some point camp. Yeah, I mean, look, there's no reason that Landau would not have been up for the role of Spock, and even if... Gene Roddenberry, because he had already worked with uh, uh, with Leonard Nimoy before. Um, even if Gene Roddenberry had his heart set on Leonard Nimoy from the beginning, um, TV doesn't work like that, where the guy who creates the show just gets to say, like, yep, it's this person and nobody else. Um, that yeah, that that would be kind of the the dream version for any TV creator. Uh, but even an executive producer, producer does not get to call all all the shots on his own show. Um, so you go through casting over and over and over again. And if you luck out and you get the Leonard Nimoy that you want, great. But um, yeah, my understanding is that. Landau was definitely up for the role, and and for good reason. He he would have 
probably been very good on Star Trek. I, I think I think clearly, you know, history has shown that Leonard Nimoy pretty much owns that role. Um, but yeah, I, if you're going to look at actors who are of that caliber who can carry off something, I uh, I put Martin Lando on that list. It's it's funny that you say the thing about casting and who you want, but uh, people may or may not know that Rollin Hand, Rollin Hand's original name, when I think they wrote the pilot or were casting, his name was Martin Land. Oh, funny. Oh, so. Wow. So I think you know who Bruce Geller probably wanted to play this part. Yeah, right, right. And then, and of course, you know, he's he has one of those funny things where, at least in the first season, he's not in the opening credits, but he's he's a special guest every week. So, you know, mm-hmm. one of those one of those weird, you know, casting or what's in your contract things. But, you know, and then eventually he gets second billing behind Peter Graves in the second season when he comes in after Stephen Hill leaves. Yeah. But and, the other... Keep, I was going to say, keep in mind that Joe D'Agosta, who was the casting director on Star Trek, was the casting director for Mission Impossible. So, you know, he's... Joe D'Agosta is pulling from the pool of agents and, uh, and, and talent managers that he knows. And a lot of those same names, like you said, a lot of those same names are going to keep showing up from show to show. So if Joe D'Agosta had anything to say about it, like, oh, okay, we all love Nimoy, but we also need to look at these other people, and Landau's likely going to be there. The the other connection that I you know may have known at one point and forgot, that I was watching the pilot because it's one of the great pilots uh, of TV, and I get to the end, and I see that Bob Justman is the producer. Yeah. And, and I was like... Did he? I'm like, did he work on this book? Because, like, the only sort of name I sure ever think about Mission Impossible is Bruce Geller. And I was like, so did Jessamyn work? And then I go back and find out that he made he worked on the pilot. Yeah. And Geller wanted him to be one of the producers on the show, but he was already under contract with Gene to do Star Trek. Right. So then it's another thing that makes you wonder, you know, what if Bob Jessamyn had gone, you know hadn't been Gene's right-hand man on Star Trek and had gone to work on a Mission Impossible, how these two things would have been different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think, I don't know, I, I think Star Trek would have uh, definitely felt that loss if Bob Justman had not been around. But so as we're talking about Trek, you, of course, are the co-host of the Mission Log podcast. You guys are currently in the middle of the last season of Next Generation. So you are you. Luckily, I was looking at season seven because I didn't. Rem, it's sort of everything blurs. To, I'm sure you know this. Everything blurs together. You don't remember when stuff is. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I, I was like, I said, this is good timing. Um, that you are coming up on two of my favorite episodes. I think of the entire series. Um, oh. The Pegasus, and lower decks i think those are probably like two weeks or a month, oh, yeah. or, a month or so but uh yeah it's, it's funny that i had i had remembered season seven being maybe not as good as it turns out that on this rewatch when listening to you and ken discuss it that i remember there being a couple of good episodes but in my memory it was this show is kind of creaking along towards the end and i think like a lot of us who were watching it at the time, I think we were much more enthused by D Space Nine that it was sort of like we don't want to see next generation go, but you can kind of feel like its time had come. I don't know if if is that something you can you can sort of feel now in hindsight as you're watching season seven. Yeah, yeah um, I when season seven of Next Gen was airing. Uh, Originally, I was in college and I wasn't I I didn't have like sort of regular appointment TV, even Star Trek. So I wasn't really tuned into it. And I I really missed most of Deep Space Nine. Uh, But I remember very well, as soon as uh, Next Gen was over, the movies came out. And uh, of course, those vary in quality. But, you know, the the high points like first contact, you go, okay, this is 
how the next gen crew wraps up their story, you know, just with a really strong movie. I mean, you kind of forget that the next two are a little weaker, but, but you sort of think of it as this trajectory that's pointing to the, the, these really high points. But I was kind of shocked that season seven has got a lot of clunkers in it. And especially when you come out of seasons three and four, where there are a lot of high points and you think, Oh, they're really finding their footing. They're really getting it. But I think TV at the time, you know, I read all these background stories and it was just a grind to get the shows out. And you get you get 15, 20 episodes into a season and they're like, oh, no, we've run out of ideas. Let's go back to the stack of scripts we rejected three years ago and uh, and try to pull something out of there. Um, so that that level of burnout is definitely a real thing. Um, I always say to people, look, if you haven't worked in, um, if you haven't worked in theater or film or TV or, or some sort of massively complicated creative endeavor like that, it's a miracle that anything gets made at all. And, and it's really a miracle on top of that, that anything good gets made. So the fact that there's so much good Star Trek out of all the Star Trek that there is, I mean, first of all, we should be grateful that Star Trek gets made at all. That could have just had its three-year run and then gone, and you never hear from it again. Um, so I'm glad that it's a show that's been able to reinvent itself and then reinvented itself as movies and, and all these other spinoff and ancillary products. Uh, but the fact that that, for the most part, Star Trek is really good that's it's kind of shocking and it's kind of miraculous um but that's a very long way of the roundabout way of answering your question to say yeah i'm pretty shocked at how horrible <laughs> some of season seven is um it's it, it's a bit of a surprise and you just wonder what was going on like are they just marking time until they're done are they really that just bereft of ideas Did they forget that they could look in the rolodex and and call somebody who had written some great stories before like ted sturgeon or uh, harlan ellison or somebody just please bring them back yeah to me it's like there's a couple of gems in season seven but like my memory is you know masks or the one when they when they when they devolve or a couple yeah. of the, of the the clunkers and you go it's like, you can't really blame, you know, I'm sure for all these guys, you know, it's been seven seasons and you're like, you know, again, they sort of know the movies are probably coming at some point in the future. So mm -hmm. it's sort of like, do we really need this grind every week? And yeah, but like I said, like I'm looking for, I'll be looking forward to you guys discussing the Pegasus and, and lower. It's funny in my memory. Like, I had mm -hmm. forgotten which characters were actually in Lower Decks. Mm -hmm. Like, for some reason in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, Ashley Judd's in that. And then I'm like, no, wait, Ashley Judd is from, like, two seasons before this. <laughs> right. I'm, right. like, projecting her into this. And it's like, oh, yeah, the, like, the one cadet that comes back from First Duty, and you know, and then. Yeah, yeah. The other, but, yeah, but I just remember the. I haven't watched it again. You know, I'll watch it, you know, in a couple of weeks when you guys get to it. But mm -hmm. I remember how great the Pegasus is. And that's one of that's that I think will be one of the I'll be interested to hear you guys discuss because that's another one of those um Starfleet is are supposed to be good guys and aren't supposed to be doing the kind of things that they're doing in that episode. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? And and it's got Terry O'Quinn. Oh right. You yeah. know, before, I mean, you know, he had done genre stuff before, but, you know, he, I guess he hadn't really made his resurgence, I guess, by, mm -hmm. you know, because that's probably like 93, 90, because, well, yeah, X-Files is on, but, you know, certainly, I, I guess, yeah, he was in X-Files, but like Millennium hadn't started by then, mm -hmm. you know, and some of the other stuff that, that we remember him for now, but yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to a couple of of episodes coming up for you guys to talk about and of course the, you know the finale which i'm sure will be great too and then we get the movies and then d space nine and that i imagine again 
that will be, you know, sort of probably give you guys like a, a, a sort of a reboot because, you know, it's a different show. It's a different cast, even though it's many of the same people making it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, clearly the the mission, the direction of that show was something very different from Deep Space Nine. And, and, and like I said, I'm really glad every time Star Trek Star Trek reboots itself. I, I think it needs to do that. Um, but like I said, I've seen so little of Deep Space Nine that really the thing for me is that this is going to be a whole new approach to doing mission log. Um, you know, TOS, TNG, I, I, I'm intimately familiar with even the animated series. I had seen them before. And even if I didn't remember them all, um, it's so familiar to TOS anyway. And of course, the original cast movies I'm so familiar with. Deep Space Nine is all new territory. I, I'm learning it as I'm going. Um, so I think what we're going to do is uh, we'll, we'll wrap up Next Gen. We will do the four Next Gen movies. We'll do probably a couple of in-between episodes uh i you know we we only produce supplementals once every now and then but i want to talk to some of the writers some of the producers and and dig a little deeper into that show to give it the proper send-off so we kind of start deep space nine with a clean break i know there's still a couple of cast members from next gen that you have not done supplementals with so i'm hoping at some point in the future maybe you'll be able to corral some of them because I think it'd be fascinating to hear from some of the people you haven't talked to yet. Um, I hope so. I mean, the, the actors are usually tougher to get because, well, let's face it, they're all really talented and they're working. Um, I, 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 to, I, I like to talk to the actors when I know it's going to be a good conversation. Will Wheaton, uh, that's still one of my favorite episodes that we did. Um, I really want to talk to the writers because – you know, part of the actor's job is to study the scene, be in the moment, and then forget so you can move on. So you can do the next scene and the next scene and the next scene. So you talk about watching Star Trek and it all blurring together. Well, we, we have the good fortune of watching a finished, edited, tightly packaged product. For an actor who's working on set, shooting a script out of order, maybe shooting episode scenes out of order with another episode they're currently working on um i i don't blame them if they can't remember it <laughs> i really don't now a writer is a different story because uh, a writer has to actually create it from the beginning to the end and they really have to pour over every detail and make sure that what they're writing is you know logically and internally consistent and and actually makes good use of the characters and then if it's star trek hopefully has a, a moral meaning or message by the time they get to the end of it um and you sometimes wonder with some of these episodes that either don't have messages or the message is a little weird <laughs> you know i want to find out what was the writer thinking when uh when they got to produce that script well it's it's funny now that having sort of watched you know almost all of next gen again i remember at the time Again, because of sort of where my interests lie, that I was one of those people that was always excited when it was a Brandon Braga episode, because I love mm. time travel and, you know, mind mm -hmm. bleepery and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's it's funny now that, you know, having watched them all again, it's like I still like a lot of those. Some of them I don't like as much as I did then, but now I look, since you have everything as a whole, you look at like all of the Klingon stuff that, that Ron Moore did as a whole, yeah. and you go, this was, you know, again, under the pressure of weekly television, you know, to weave this tapestry of like mm -hmm. all this Klingon mythology that he was able to put together is really an amazing piece of work when you just look at that piece of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, and yeah, then, you know, and yet, like you said, and if, you know, he's somebody that you would like end up doing a supplemental with, it's like not only do you have all of that to talk about, it's like, you know, he's now also created a whole nother show that mm -hmm. to contrast with, you know, this is how we made Trek, you know, and this is how we made 
Galactica. You know, and yeah. sort of, it, it would be an interesting thing to hear him compare and contrast how making the two shows was different. You know. Right. Yeah, well, and the main thing being that with Galactica, he really had a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of artistic freedom to, to do the show that he wanted to do. And I know that in making Galactica, he sort of made the Star Trek Voyager that he wanted to see. You know, because Brandon had gone off to do Voyager and that became a very different show. And then Ron Moore was at DS9. So they they wrote together a lot in those TNG days. And, of course, they wrote uh, features together. But, um, you know, when they split those other two spinoff shows, they they went separate ways. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, part of the reality of being a TV writer is that you may have these grand ideas of what you're trying to say by the end of a season or by the end of a series uh, or what you're trying to do with a character, but you may just not get there because again, the grind is, well, I got to get the episode out. I got to use all the resources available to me. Um, maybe one script is not as strong as another. So I got to go with the other stronger script, even if it doesn't get me exactly where I'm trying to go. So, you know, uh, I, when Brannon and uh, Rick Berman, we're getting ready to do Enterprise. They asked for a year off. I said, look, you know, we, we just wrapped Voyager. Let's take a year off and let's actually plot out everything that's going to happen, at least in the first season. So we know where we're going and we know how to build the, the, the type of world that we want. And the network basically said, nope, uh, you do it now or we'll hire somebody else to do it. And it's a real shame because, you know, that's the way TV is made now. We, we wouldn't think any differently now where Game of Thrones, you plot out the entire season and they film the entire season and then release it. And then you wait a while until the next season comes out. And speaking of new Star Trek, um, mm -hmm. again, one of the reasons we're doing this now is that uh, this time next week we'll, we will have new Star Trek. Yeah. Um, Discovery is going to premiere as we record Sunday night on CBS before it moves to the CBS's streaming service. Right. Um, so for people that only marginally know about Discovery, I think we, from what we've been told, I think maybe couch all of this just in case, that it apparently is taking place in... I guess what they call the prime universe, the, the mm -hmm. non, the non JJ, uh, right. origin, original TOS TNG universe. Right. Uh, it takes place 10 years or so before TOS. Correct. Yeah. Um, and I know, uh, from, you know, if people have watched the trailers, we're, we're going to have a different kind of Klingon. Mm -hmm. And we know that Jason Isaacs is a captain of one ship, and we mm -hmm. know that Michelle Yeoh is the captain of another ship, and apparently the point of view character for this show is not going to be either of the captains, but it's going to be Michelle Yeoh's first mate. Right. Um, yeah. So – if all that is right, well, what else can you tell people that they may want to know going into watching the first episode? <laughs> um, so, yeah, all of that is factually correct. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, at the very least from the trailers alone, this is a big epic show. It, it, it's like watching a movie, but on TV. You know, the, the effects are incredible. The the detail work and the costumes and props and sets are absolutely stunning. It, it's just going to look phenomenal. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are hung up on design and hung up on this having to fit perfectly with their idea of what TOS looked like. And I think people need to kind of get over the fact that TV in 2017 is made a lot differently from TV in 1966. Um, so things are going to look different. Pacing is going to be different. Style is going to be different. Um, 
but that's the sort of the reality of production. It's reality of, well, we want to get and keep an audience now. We're not making a TV show for an audience in 1966. Um, I think if we can all just take a collective breath and get over that and watch it for the characters, because that's what's going to draw you in and keep you into a show. Um, I mean, God knows when I talk about next gen, I, I think, uh, it, you know, the, the set looks like the, the Hilton hotel in space, but I'm not worried about that. What I'm interested in is the characters. I'm interested in Picard and Riker and Dr. Crusher, and I'm interested in who they are and how they solve problems, you know? So that, that's what I want to see in discovery. And from what I can tell, the characters are pretty fascinating. So, um, that, that's what'll get me there and that's what'll keep me there. And I, people may or may not know this, so I'll be I'll be vague. Um, mm-hmm. The thing that intrigues me, at least on the surface, is that there's at least one character, in at least in name, that is uh, from the original series. Yep. Um, played by again someone at least well known to people from television of the last fifteen years, so that will be intriguing mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I remember reading that, I'm like, okay, you know, new person, new person, and then it's like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of like, of all the people from TOS that you could bring in, you bring in this person. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, and admittedly, I assume, I don't know this, but for comic relief, perhaps. Maybe. Based on the original version of the character, but you never know how that's mm-hmm how that's going to go. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, and I know the other thing, (coughs) excuse me, Mm -hmm. that I have read is I know there's a certain segment of fandom that again is worried about continuity. And it's like, maybe it's because I'm old now and I've been through so many reboots of so many things that like a good story is more important than continuity now. Yeah, and it's like the fact this is ten ten years before TOS, but that means it's theoretically that Pike and Spock are on the Enterprise should be around on the Enterprise maybe, or Captain April should be around, but it's like you know I I yeah. sort of don't I I don't care. Well, I mean unless they do, yeah, unless they do something really 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 weird. Yeah, then I figured. They know they know that there are things that people will be wondering about, and they either have a plan, or they have a plan as to why they don't have a plan. Right, right. So yeah, I'm, I mean, look at it this way: Star Trek is not <laughs> Star Trek is rarely a slave to its own continuity. Spot the cat is sometimes male and sometimes female. And if you can't get that basic thing right from week to week, then we just have to stop all discussion and worry about continuity and consistency because that, that's a pretty obvious thing, right? Um, my my take on it is this. Um, you can have in the U.S. Navy right now uh, a state-of-the-art ship, uh, which you and I, uh, not being at the uh, top of military intelligence, we would not know. We would not even have a place to start looking to find out what sort of technologies are in maybe a modern vessel built for the modern navy, right? But at the same time, you also have navy vessels that are 30 years old that are still out there doing their thing. So you can have different technologies existing in the same time and place. You can have different missions existing in the same time and place. Um, I, I hope that Discovery does some little things to sort of show you that this all exists in the same universe. But at the same time, I hope that they're not being just slaves to fan service um, because then then the story becomes secondary. And, and like you were just saying, the story has to come first. That's really what it's all about. Now, if there's a clever way to work in something that goes, oh, yeah, I remember that guy from the original series. Or, oh, yeah, I can see how you could kind of go from point A to point B to point C and end up back where we know this other thing happened in Star Trek history. Cool. But but that's just like a little Easter egg. That's just like a little nugget for those Star Trek fans. 
they, you can't build a whole series around that. That's what I was about to say. You know, put in as many Easter eggs as you want. You know, for I me mean, now that we all watch in HD, you know that we yeah. can. I mean, you you guys talk about this occasionally when you watch the Blu-rays, that now you can freeze frame and look and find all of these in jokes that oh, yeah. Yeah. you know nobody knew about 25 years ago. You know, the thing with the numbers or you know. Uh, technical cast and crew being listed on a manifold or on a, you know, a printout or, or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, that's cool. Or, you know, if we see something in one of the captain's cabins that isn't a slight allusion to an obscure reference from like season two of TOS, that's fine. You know, it's like, you know, don't have it like sitting, you know, sitting on like the captain's desk where you can't ignore it. But if it's, you know what I mean? If it's like Picard's fish or, you know, Picard's <laughs> book or Picard's book of Shakespeare that, you know, eject, you know, it's turned to a certain page this week because there's a reference mm-hmm. to something in this. That's cool. But yeah, the other yeah. thing don't, don't need. So yeah, so it will certainly be interesting. And again, this will be the first Star Trek new Star Trek that you guys will have to deal with as a podcast that talks about Star Trek. I mean, we've, we've had the movies since you guys started Mission Log. So I guess the question is, mm-hmm. how are you guys going to handle a weekly television show that is airing uh, episodically as you do your podcast? Yeah, so it's going to be a challenge, but um, our intention is to keep doing Mission Log regularly the way we do it now, week to week, covering in order, in series order. Like you mentioned, we're coming up at the end of Next Gen and then the Next Gen movies, and they move on to Deep Space Nine. So that won't change. What we are going to do, because essentially Discovery for the first season is divided into two seven-week chunks. You have episodes one and two releasing the same week, and then uh, uh, through episode eight, that'll be the first half of the first season. So that's end of September to the beginning of November. Then you take a couple of months off, and then the next seven episodes air starting second week of January. Great. So what we're going to do is a live video show So on Facebook Live and presumably YouTube Live, and then we'll strip that audio out and release that as a podcast separately as well. Um, But Mission Log Live is the name of the show, and we thought the best thing to do is that 48 hours after an episode comes out, so 7 o'clock Pacific time, Tuesday nights, um, we go on Facebook Live Ken and I do maybe a 10, 15-minute thing. Hey, here's what we watched. Here's kind of the basic breakdown, not not heavily written out. Um, what did you think? And then we want our listeners, through video or audio, to chime in. And let's just spend the next you know, 30, 40 minutes after that figuring it out. And, and this is not a show where we want to hear 100 people call in and say, I hate the uniforms, right? It, that That's, again, we've already established that's not what we're interested in. What we want to do is figure out, well, where's the heart of the show? What are they What are they getting at? What are the morals, meanings, messages that we think they're trying to tackle? Because part of the difficulty with uh, Discovery, and one of the reasons that we're not treating it like the regular mission log yet, is that they're writing a season-long story. So if we do episode one, then we're doing one-fifteenth of the story they're trying to tell. And it's not neatly wrapped up with the beginning, middle, and end. We're just sort of exploring where things are going to go. So we thought the best way to handle it is let, let's turn it over to the fans. Let's turn it over to the people who are watching these shows. And then very soon after they've watched it, chime in and tell us what you thought. Um And like I said, our intention is not to just sit there and pick it apart. Our intention is to to analyze it and uh, and and get people to to help us in that process. And I presume you really don't know what percentage of your regular audience will have seen an episode by the time you guys do your show every week or how many people are going to say, wait until the first chunk is done and then 
subscribe to CBS Access for a month and then watch all of them and then mm-hmm. cancel and then resubscribe once it's done in January. Or, you know, are, mm-hmm. you know, Trekkies being Trekkies, will they be, you know, devoted and, you know, be there on, on day one to make sure their subscription is ready for whatever this may bring? I think, I, like you said, it's uncharted waters, and especially for you guys, knowing what kind of audience you'll have. Yeah, well, I, I certainly hope that people will, from day one, be there, signed up, watching it. Um, look, I, I don't... I don't get paid by CBS, so um, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help me to encourage people to go sign up on All Access. But I will say that as a Star Trek fan, I want them to keep making Star Trek, and the way to make that happen is to support Star Trek. Um, the absolutely incredible uh, uh, Blu-rays of Next Gen just fabulous work that they did on those they're so good if you if you're within the range of my voice and you haven't watched them please go get them um you know one of the reasons i feel like there there hasn't been an announcement about doing uh blu-rays of deep space nine or voyager is that the sales weren't there to support doing more shows and yeah, I could look at it as saying, wow, 80 bucks for a season of Next Gen is expensive. But I could also look at it and say, they're putting more into it now than they did when those shows were originally uh, uh, done in post-production. You know, they had to recreate those shows from the ground up, frame by frame. Um, it's a staggering amount of work, and I want that to succeed. So that's why I, I didn't get them for free. You know, I had to go buy copies of blu-rays and and stuff to fill out to, to finish my collection so i want people to treat all access the same way and say you know what i'm going to give it a shot i want to support star trek it's even if that's the only thing you watch it's like a buck 50 an episode by the time you uh, uh have paid your month-long subscription um i think that's a pretty good deal with the prospect of keeping track alive for another season hopefully another season and let's see where it goes you don't have to think it's all wonderful, but I imagine that we're all going to find things within this that we like and that, that we want to talk about and pick apart and debate. And I don't think it's just going to be fluff, and I don't think it's just going to be space battles. You know, I went to a, um, I went to a screening of Star Trek Beyond last year that Rod Roddenberry had paid for. And he just – this was around Comic-Con time, and he just – he, he four-walled a theater and invited everybody who could come, and, and we all got to see Star Trek Beyond for free. And it was great, and, I, and I'm really thankful that he did that. And I remember sitting there after the movie. A bunch of us went out for a drink afterward, and um, somebody was talking about CBS All Access and how they didn't want to pay to watch Star Trek. And I said, look, you just saw Star Trek Beyond. It was fantastic, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we were watching it at the Arclight, and the Arclight, a, a ticket there is about 16 bucks. I said, so somebody just saved you 16 bucks for a movie that you would have paid to watch and really enjoyed anyway, but you would have paid to watch it and felt like you got your money's worth for 16 bucks. I said, great. That's two and a half months of all access right there that somebody just paid for, so now you still have that money in your pocket. So pay it forward. You just got to see a movie you really enjoyed. And now you've got that money in your pocket. So in a year, you can watch uh, Star Trek Beyond. So I think it works out pretty nicely. It's all a wash at that point. Yeah. Um, so, John, I want to thank you very, very much for doing the show today. Uh, as we thank have you, been, Mark. As we have been discussing, um, you are the co-host with Ken Ray of Mission Log, which drops every Thursday. Um recapping Star Trek. Like I said, next, as we've said, Next Gen is almost done, and then the movies, and then Deep Space Nine. Um, I know you occasionally do another pod whose name... I don't... Mm-hmm. The Yeah, it's on uh, Trek FM. Okay. Uh, I, I guess they're very often on the 602 Club, okay, talking it's... about James Bond. And we were just speaking of Michelle Yeoh, who is a James Bond alum. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Okay, uh, since you are a James Bond connoisseur, this is a very polarizing thing that alienate many of my friends. Oh no. Um, okay. So, so I ask you now that we're done. So, uh, if we disagree, it's we can shake hands and and go, and we have not wasted the last forty five minutes. Mm-hmm. Where where do you stand on the original Casino Royale? Oh, now when you say original, do okay. you mean Barry, Barry Nelson? Or no, 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 no. I mean, uh, I mean Woody Allen. Yeah, I mean the Peter Sellers, etc. David Niven, mm-hmm. Woody Casino Royale. I, I think it's a glorious mess that could only have been made in the late '60s by insane people. Good. I am. I am happy. <laughs> I because uh, people often get annoyed when I refer, uh, when people will discuss the Daniel Craig movies. Yeah, and yeah. they'll talk about Casino Royale, and I'll be like, "You don't mean the good one." <laughs> and people oh, will, no. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, that's what I tell them. It is such, it's such a uh, a '60s thing, and you have to understand, like the Bond culture, and you have to know about British comedy and yep. all these kinds of things that, like you said, it. It is certainly, you know, it's not Citizen Kane, even though Orson Welles is in it and may or may not have directed part of it. Right. But it's, you know, it's the thing. I often tell people, I said, I wish you could program the DVD to actually make the two or three sort of mini movies in Casino Royale into just themselves. Mm. Like, Mm -hmm. if you could just, if you just had... The David Niven parts as yeah, one movie, yeah. or you had the Peter Sellers parts as just one That's movie. A great idea. Yeah, I love that idea. You know what I mean? Because it really does seem like a kind of movie that was sort of like chopped together because sometimes, you know, scenes go from place to place and you don't understand why. Like you said, it's very surreal, if nothing mm-hmm. else. And again, there's so many great people in it, and. It's so yeah. It's the kind of thing you know. Ursula, you have Ursula Anders who is a Bond girl being in this. You have Dala Lavi who would later be a Bond yeah. girl in it. And yeah, then you have Peter Sellers and it's like you have Peter Sellers, Woody Allen, and Orson Welles in one movie. It's yeah. like yeah. How bad? You had, uh, Barbara Boucher who was in Star Trek. Uh, so yeah, this is full of uh, of awesome cameos and guest stars. It's great. I'm 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 happy to hear that because I I remember I I picked it once for a movie thing that some friends and I do and mm-hmm. I've sort of gone on the string of I pick I I for a while I picked just famous like weird '60s big '60s kind of thing it's like I put Casino Royale sort of in the same category as the great race or magnificent men and their flying machine. Like to me, they're all of that time, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. again, and that's Blake Edwards. And again, you know, making you, know, you have the pink Panther and then you have Peter Sellers and David Niven again. And so everything's related, but, but I just, cause people will be like, this, this doesn't make any sense. And there's such things that like, why are they in Smirsh's headquarters? And there's a Frankenstein monster. Because there is. Because there is. Uh, yes, yes. Because and, that's what the the set decorator put there, and that's what the director filmed. The yes. other, the other really funny thing that people don't notice until you point out. And I'll see if, if you. The funniest thing is when you have the fight in the casino, at the mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. You have the cowboys, right in, as the cavalry, to to fight the Smirsh agents. Right. And then you have the Indians parachute into the casino you know, with parachutes that look like teepees. Mm-hmm. But they're also the good guys because on their war paint, they have written 007. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. but then the cowboys and the Indians fight each other because they're cowboys and Indians. Yep. That's the way it works, man. That's the way it works in a 1960s movie. When you have five, it, when you have five directors and a million writers, and mm-hmm. you have Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass do ah, the theme, yes. you know it's 
Yeah, like you said, it's a glorious mess. Yeah. Well, listen, for your next uh, 60s movie pick, I'm going to recommend Danger Diabolique with uh, John Philip Law and uh, Marissa Mel. Uh, and and uh, Aldolfo Celli from uh, Thunderball. So um, it's a Mario Bava movie with uh, an Ennio Morricone score. And it's, again, just like big, crazy comic book, bold it's, movie. It's funny. When, it's, I've, when, I've, when I've shown that to people, they'll mm-hmm. go, is, is this where the Beastie Boys got the – the thing from and i'm like yes and like that's that's how you tell them it's like yes this is yes. this is where that where, where yes. that's where that's from yeah um, yeah exactly oh uh, like it okay um so yeah so you have mission log you have uh your other pot uh is there anything else uh you you want to mention before we go no, I would just say, um, yeah, find us at uh, missionlogpodcast.com. But uh, we've added other shows to our lineup and uh, the live show as well. So check out podcast.roddenberry.com because you'll find us and you'll find Priority One and Women at Warp. And then anything that gets added to the list is uh, going to get added there. So podcast.roddenberry.com. And you guys on the website have uh... – are you still doing the discovered document uh, things? I know, I know, we, I know you yeah, stopped we, we for a are. while. Yeah, yeah, we we are, but it it, it kind of got tricky for a couple of reasons. So you have our discovered documents, and you have the Roddenberry three sixty five project, which is kind of separate but related, where they're releasing uh, a document every day. And we're about to launch a new podcast that is specifically a deep dive into documents. So um, that's called The Trek Files, and that'll be hosted by uh, Larry Nemechek. Um, so, yeah, that the, the documents sort of got all mixed up, and we're trying to spread them out. Uh, so there is more to go. There is more that will be added at Mission Log, um, just it, not day and date with the episodes. We'll, we'll sort of be backfilling, like, oh, here's an interesting thing that didn't really fit somewhere else. So, yeah, so there'll be more. There will be more. That's great. People can check that out. Once again, John, I really thank you for doing the show today. And we will talk to everybody next time. Seven James Bonds at Casino Royale. They came to save the world and win the gal at Casino Royale. Six of them went to a heavenly spot. The seventh one is going to a place where it's terribly hot.